It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, it's time again for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, not as nasty as we used to be. A massive new study from the famed psychologist Steven Pinker says that human violence is on the wane, and it has been for a very long time. Oh yeah, we're still quite capable of brutality and barbarism, but we're a lot less likely to maim, murder, and massacre each other than in the blood-soaked days of yore, or should I say gore. I'll talk war and peace with Steven Pinker in the hour to come. Stay tuned. All right, so as mentioned, today's guest is Steven Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University. And I don't know how he does it, but every couple of years he comes out with one of these. That was his 1994 book, The Language Instinct. And then in 1997, he came out with this one, How the Mind Works. And then another in 1991 called Words and Rules. And The Blank Slate in 2002. And in 2007, The Stuff of Thought. And as you can uh, probably make out from the thuds, these are not small books. They average about 500 pages apiece, none of it fluff, just loads of research data and information and lucid explanations about Pinker's specialty, which is cognitive science. He studies the workings of the brain and the mind, particularly our language abilities, and often from an evolutionary standpoint. Well, now Steven Pinker has a new book out, and it may be his weightiest yet. Joking aside, it is an undeniably substantial work, both in word count and the ambition of its ideas. It's called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. And the book uh, presents a wide variety of evidence to show that all kinds of human bloodletting, from wars to homicide, have been on the downslope for centuries, millennia even. Despite all our pessimism about human nature, that we're savages at heart and always will be, Steven Pinker says that we have, in fact, been getting nicer all these years. And the reasons uh, that he offers are not necessarily those that you'd expect from an evolutionary psychologist. We'll get into those reasons in just a moment, but first I had Steven Pinker read a passage from the end of his book. To review the history of violence is to be repeatedly astounded by the cruelty and waste of it all, and at times to be overcome with anger, disgust, and immeasurable sadness. I know that behind the graphs, there is a young man who feels a stab of pain and watches the life drain slowly out of him, knowing he has been robbed of decades of existence. There is a victim of torture whose contents of consciousness have been replaced by unbearable agony, leaving room only for the desire that consciousness itself should cease. There is a woman who has learned that her husband, her father, and her brothers lie dead in a ditch and who will soon fall into the hand of hot and forcing violation. It would be terrible enough if these ordeals befell one person, or ten, or a hundred. But the numbers are not in the hundreds, or the thousands, or even the millions, but in the hundreds of millions, an order of magnitude that the mind staggers to comprehend with deepening horror as it comes to realize just how much suffering has been inflicted by the naked ape upon its own kind. You know, in reading this book, and comparing it to some of your others, this one really felt personal to me. Yes, although 
uh, ironically enough, not because of what has happened to me, but what has not happened to me. I am one of the uh, the blessed sector of humanity, a, a growing sector, that will grow up almost certainly without being touched by violence, uh, other than some fairly trivial uh, playground bullying, which itself has been now targeted for elimination. But I, I look back to, to my... Uh, my grandparents, my, my grandmother's earliest memory was the uh, pogrom in Kishinev, uh, Moldova. Her husband uh, was a courier in World War I, then captured by the, uh, the uh, Russians and forced to be a slave laborer in a coal mine. My other grandfather chopped off his thumb, as many Jews of the time did, so as not to serve in the Tsar's army, which was a, a death sentence. My uh, late father-in-law died in the uh, riots of, in uh, Malaysia in 1969. You don't have to go back so far to find lives that were touched by violence. Uh, most of us today uh, do no longer have to worry about that. That is a, it's a profound uh, change in the human condition for which I'm uh, immensely grateful. And I think some of that, uh, that gratitude... Uh, uh, overflowed in the, into the writing of this book. Mm. Well, you've helpfully uh, summed up a lot of the, the book's argument right there, but as far as the personal dimension, in the early going of the book and, and then at other points throughout, you, you get into graphic detail about some of the horrific things that human beings have done to each other, especially in the past, torture and mayhem and slaughter and carnage and all kinds of things. And you strike me as someone who, who loathes violence, uh, yes, you said loathe, right? Not love. I said loathe, definitely. Yeah, yeah so lo loathe it is absolutely. And it comes through in the writing. But did you force yourself to write these these awful accounts? Yes, and you should have seen the sources that I got it from. Oh, <laughs> Believe yeah. me, there's much worse. Uh, I was actually re remarkably restrained to to read histories of genocide. Uh, you think of genocide as just uh, terminating the lives of large numbers of people, but it's typically accompanied by gruesome tortures and mutilations. Uh, likewise, I have a number of books that detail uh, what people did to each other in the Middle Ages, and I gave a, 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 a minuscule sample of that. Well, uh, you gave enough for me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, I, like you, have a hard time even reading this stuff, but you, you wrote it. Uh, why did you decide to write that? I mean, you could have been a little more clinical and said rates of homicide, as you do, or rates of torture, but you particularize it in these stories. Indeed, part of it is my appreciation as a psychologist that the human mind is driven by images and anecdotes rather than by statistics. This is largely a book of statistics. There, there are a hundred graphs, uh, and, and everything I say I try to back up with numbers. But I realize that that doesn't, even though that's where I rest my case, uh, to, to make it real to readers, you have to know what is lies behind these numbers, not just to appreciate the, the message, but, uh, but also to mobilize the uh, emotional components of the human mind that, uh, that, that need to know what violence consists of concretely and, mm -hmm. and to appreciate how far we've come. In particular, the, the um, gruesome medieval tortures that I uh, uh, recount are partly intended to remind people of what a wonderful thing the Enlightenment was. And uh, we tend to sneer at the, in the Enlightenment. Well, it, it's a, the, the naive belief that uh, humans are a, a bunch of pointy-eared Vulcans and rational animals. Uh, but uh, a lot of the arguments of the Enlightenment really uh, had horrific events that, uh, that inspired them. I mean, they really did 
as we know, keep slaves. They tortured each other. Kings could have people killed on a whim. That's the world that we left behind. Um, it seems to me the book um, itself veers between being kind of pointy-eared in Vulcan and being passionately human, uh, which I guess is maybe two sides of your personality. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, one could certainly say that. Uh, speaking of statistics, you do have a lot of them, uh, and uh, you know some that may surprise people. Of course, we think of the 20th century, uh, those who don't have a lot of hindsight think of it as maybe the bloodiest period in human history with two world wars and lots of uh, smaller wars and genocides and things like that aided by modern weaponry. But uh, you have a list of older wars and older forms of carnage, and some of the death tolls are astounding, especially given the population of human beings on the planet at the time. For instance, um, I'm looking at a table in your book, actually, the Mongol conquests in the 13th century, uh, estimated death toll 40 million, which works out to the equivalent of close to 300 million in today's terms, uh, you know, balanced to our, our current population. And the An Lushan revolt of the 8th century, uh, 36 million killed. Uh, quite possibly, if we go by the censuses of the time. These figures come from uh, Matthew White, a man who calls himself an atrocitologist, uh, and who has his own book coming out, The Great Big Book of Horrible Things. But, uh, but yes, if you actually try to estimate within a, you know, an order of magnitude or so the death tolls of history's atrocities, uh, you can be astounded by some of the bloodlettings in earlier centuries. And you trust these figures, more or less? Well, the uh, certainly not not to any degree of precision, but in terms of just addressing the the the, the uh, question, were there atrocities in previous centuries that were of a similar order of magnitude as the ones of today? Uh, then I think they have to be taken seriously. Well, one of the the toughest cases you have to make then is to say that yeah, the twentieth century looks bad to us, but if you graph uh, the general trends both in sort of mass slaughter and in uh, individual personal violent crime, homicide, uh, you will see that it's been trending downward more or less steadily for quite a long time, including the 20th century. That's right. I, I, wouldn't, I, I don't know if I would use the word steadily because it's been so uh, bumpy and there have been reversals, uh, but, but uh, downward definitely. Well, tell me about the bumps because uh, some people could say these are the exceptions that disprove the rule. Or you could say, oh, uh, it's statistical blips that happen in any statistically determined process. You'll see occasional jumps this way or that, but the real trend is still downward if you draw the line and average out all the points. What's your argument there? Well, I think you stated it very well. If you simply concentrate on one event or even two events, uh, you can be led into terrible error if you extrapolate a trend based on one point or even two points, and which is what a lot of commentators did based on the First and Second World Wars. They assumed, well, First World War maybe killed uh, altogether uh, 15 million people, Second World War perhaps 50 million if you count all the uh, deaths from disease and famine. Uh, therefore, it's inevitable that we're going to have World War III, and that's going to kill even more than 50 million people. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be, to be wrong. World War III is not going to happen, at least not the, the one that everyone feared between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Where did all the uh, experts go wrong? Well, they extrapolated a trend based on two points, and that we just know that that's, uh, that's a fallacy. Uh, that there's a lot of random uh, spikes in the history of warfare, uh, and there can be a big spike without it meaning that it's a new normal or an escalating trend. 
and indeed since the end of World War II, there's been an unprecedented uh, period of um, low rates of death in warfare, particularly interstate warfare. And World War II is much more of a last gasp than a sign of things to come. Now, even adding up all the, the mortality in all the wars in the 20th century, it still comes off looking okay next to previous centuries, right, in per capita uh, killed? Well, it, certainly in terms of, um, for, for past centuries, we can't really estimate the, uh, the, the rate of death worldwide just because the data are too scanty from other parts of the world. But certainly it's um, lower than it ha- was in uh, tribal societies, by, by far. Tribal societies, about 15% of people die in violence. In the 20th century, throwing in all of the genocides and famines uh, and wars, it's about 3%. Uh, and that 3% was a, uh, a, itself a, a high. It's The last 60 years are nowhere near that level. And um, declines in death due to violence are not because of increases in life-saving technologies, medicine and so on. Uh, most of it not, uh, partly because a lot of the uh, destruction of years past couldn't have been prevented by life-saving technologies. If you've got a, one army besieging a city and, and starving it to death, they're not going to let the doctors in, even if the doctors could save people's lives. Or if you you'd drop an atomic bomb on, uh, on Hiroshima uh, for, for the vast majority of victims, medical care is, uh, is kind of beside the point. Uh, and uh, even though it's certainly true that a greater percentage of, say, American soldiers survive their injuries than in uh, years past, uh, there's no way that the kind of carpet bombings that were a regular part of war, uh, that their death tolls could have been significantly reduced by the advances in, in uh, medical care, which, by the way, themselves uh, tell us something, namely that we have put more and more of our resources into bringing our soldiers back alive. It used to be that the lives of soldiers were uh, were, were cheap and that uh, they'd be sent into battle to die by the tens of thousands. Now, even when we do get into a war, the military planners put a lot of thought and resources into uh, minimizing the loss of life. Um, life is cheap um, occurred to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, as an explanation just for this general trend that you point out in um, reverence for life, appreciation of life. In the old days when the average lifespan, and I'm just going to throw out a number here, you know, might have been in, in the 20s when infant mortality was extremely high, when people, you know, died like flies all around from any old cause, maybe killing didn't seem so bad. We're, 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 we're going to die anyway in a, in a year or two, you know? Yeah, yes, I think that was part of it, and you do see uh, an increasing reverence for life, um, it, even the fact that we put more of our resources into uh, auto safety, uh, into occupational safety, into the safety of our children, uh, the the rate of death in um, per passenger mile in car transport has fallen by a factor of six since the 1950s. We we spend more of our money in trying to uh, save and preserve life. Although it's interesting, it isn't the entire story because most of the increase in human uh, well-being and affluence and lifespan occurred in the 19th century, first with the Industrial Revolution that for the first time in human history led to a a big increase in human uh, wealth. And then in the second half of the 19th century, the Public Health Revolution, which first started prolonging people's lives by a significant amount. But a lot of these humanitarian reforms took place a century earlier, in the 18th century, the age of the uh, 
American Constitution with the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, the first abolition of slavery movement, the uh, abolition of uh, torture and religious persecution. So some of the reverence for life occurred before life itself got longer and richer and more pleasant. Uh-huh. So, think- so we can't just chalk it up to the fact that... Uh, as our lifespans increased, you know, due Not to... Not completely. I okay. think some of it came from ideas, uh-huh. the fact that people were literate, that there was more open debate over how to, uh, we, should, we, could, we should organize our affairs. And the one technology that did show an improvement before the Industrial Revolution was printing. And there was a huge increase in books and letters and pamphlets and uh, newspapers uh, in the, prior to the uh, 18th century. And I'm guessing that just having a lot of people who are more educated, more literate, more argumentative, more um, uh, open to debate, propelled some of the humanitarian reforms of the Enlightenment, even before the Industrial Revolution. Well, Steve, this might be a good time for you to just sort of lay out what you think the, the key events and forces were that have led to what seems like, with a few exceptions, a steady or continual uh, decrease in violence over the last few millennia? I think uh, government was a big part of it, that when you uh, outsource your vengeance and your deterrence to a a third party, there are going to be fewer bodies on the ground than when each side uh, tries to implement its own rough justice, because everyone always thinks that the other guy's violence was unprovoked and dastardly and senseless, but their own violence is a justified retaliation. Uh, when you have two sides who both think that, then you've got cycles of of uh, vendetta and feuding. You've got the Sopranos, you've got the Corleones, you've got the Hatfields and the McCoys. Bringing in a government tamps down on that. Uh, a second uh, factor, I think, is commerce. Is uh, When you have uh, a path to upward mobility that consists of um, making things and selling them and, and buying them, that tends to be more peaceful than when your path to upward mobility is conquering the uh, land of your neighbor and uh, killing his peasants. Uh, I think a third factor has been the, the, the rise of literacy and education and uh, media that uh, lifts us up out of our tribe and makes us uh, aware of other people unlike ourselves, that they have uh, uh, feelings, too, that uh, if we simply perpetuate cycles of violence, we'll all be worse off. We, we stand back and we reflect and, and say, instead of figuring out how we can defeat our enemy, maybe we can figure out a way that both we and our enemy can back away from the fight at the same time. So I identify those as the three main historical forces. So uh, in broad terms, I mean, we could say that when human beings organize and get together and form larger and larger groups from city-states through nations, uh, they tend to implement a kind of legal code and kind of enforcement of behavior that tamps down just sort of random interpersonal violence, yeah? Yes, and, and the initial steps don't really take place for the benefit of the uh, the people who are deterred from violence. That is, the first kings and emperors, it's not as if they really cared about their, their citizens, but rather, just as a farmer uh, has an interest in preventing his cattle from killing each other, because it's just a dead loss to him, uh, the first kings wanted to keep peace within their kingdom so they could keep the people alive to be soldiers and send give them taxes and so on. So that, that uh, it was only later with um, the, the democratic revolution, the idea that the uh, leaders of a country ruled for the benefit of citizens, that you brought down the violence perpetrated by government. 
But uh, even a bad government tends to reduce violence overall by keeping people from each other's throats, but it then opens up the second stage in the process of preventing the government from preying on its own people. And then uh, commerce, you mentioned, uh, even though we sometimes think of, of the commercial world as, as outright combat or competition, actually it's what you call a positive-sum game. We all have skin in the game. We benefit when others benefit. Our markets go nowhere if, if people are dead or, or injured exactly, or disabled. Yeah. Therefore, um, violence is, is counterproductive for all of us. That's right. If I have more milk than I can drink and you have more grain than you can eat, I give you some milk in exchange for some grain, uh, everybody wins. We're all better off. Uh, and that is the process that gets uh, multiplied um, uh, manyfold in a modern economy. Uh, also, for uh, however uh, unsavory we may think the profit motive to be, it's still better than national glory, racial supremacy, perfect justice, settling old scores. And a lot of wars were not fought over just greed or gain, but over, over what people experienced to be a more, great moral cause, bringing about a utopia, bringing God's kingdom to earth, uh, achieving racial supremacy, the dictatorship of the proletariat, all of these things that are very moral and intellectual, and, and I think we'd be better off if all we were concerned about was getting rich. Uh, and statistically, countries that are uh, capitalist and uh, engage in more international trade have lower rates of war and civil war and genocide, contrary to a, a widespread stereotype. What you're talking about now is, of course, enlightened self-interest. But you, you cite some other forces that have made us sort of internally more soft-hearted, more compassionate, uh, more empathic. Yes. Uh, yes, indeed. I think uh, almost all of us have an inborn sense of empathy, but uh, left to our own devices, we apply it to a f pretty narrow circle of uh, friends and family and uh, cute, warm, fuzzy things. But um, as the philosopher Peter Singer has noted, the, in, over the course of uh, history, the circle of empathy has expanded. So we direct our empathy at larger uh, and larger circles of humanity and, and, and even non-humanity when it comes to compassion for animals. And I think that process has been pushed along by consumption of fiction and journalism and history, opportunities to try to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and imagine what it's like to be that person. And that makes it a little harder to exploit them and brutalize them. You know, this sounds like a good old-fashioned um, defense of liberal arts and humanities. Uh, it is, and, uh, and I think there's some um, scientific data that supports that defense. Namely, uh, there goes your Spock side again. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> that is, I don't want to make the argument just on the, the soft-hearted appeal that, uh, that, that reading fiction is good for you. But, uh, but there are studies that show that if you have people read uh, the words of uh, another person, they become more sympathetic to that person and to the category of people that that individual represents. Um, and uh, I want to point out that in your book, you don't just throw out some of these um, very old ideas willy-nilly. You map some of these changes in human society to uh, the historical data on violence, and you see a correspondence. So the institution of early governments, you see a drop in violence from, from tribal uh, hunter-gatherer environments, right? Uh, yes. During the Enlightenment, you see another drop. So when people get literate, when people start um, 
advocating a, a more universal idea of humanity and fellow feeling, you do see these declines in violence happen. That's right. So I, I try to make the argument by combining uh, some psychology with some history. So the history uh, tells us that one thing happened before another thing. So literacy and availability of books went up. Then you got abolition of cruel and unusual punishment and slavery. Now, A before coming before B doesn't prove that A causes B. That that's a, a well-known logical fallacy, and that's where the psychology comes in. If I can take a sample of uh, college sophomores and give them some fiction and measure their empathy toward that kind of person and show that uh, indeed consuming the fiction makes them more empathic, well, that bolsters the argument that the historical explosion of literacy and printing really did cause, or at least in part, the humanitarian reforms in its wake. Uh, not proof, but certainly very suggestive. That, that's the, the argument. So that's the combination of history and psychology that I try to uh, apply to each of the hypotheses uh, of what historical events drove violence down. Now, I'm guessing that there's some people out there knowing a bit about you, uh, thinking of you as very much a, a Darwinian, uh, an evolutionary psychologist, that uh, when they opened this book, maybe they thought this is going to all come down to some kind of argument from natural selection, uh, some kind of genetic changes or something like that. Even though the time spans we're talking about are very short in evolutionary terms, selection can happen really rapidly. It can, and I have a, 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 um, a section in Better Angels where I discuss the possibility that we have literally evolved in the biologist's Darwinian sense, that is, a change in our genome uh, to become more vi less violent. And I, for some of the changes, you can't rule that out. Uh, it's possible, that is, it's, it's consistent with the laws of biology and the numbers, that since the Middle Ages we've evolved to become less impulsive and uh, more reflective and, and more empathic. But I also note that since some of these changes have unfolded over much quicker time spans, over decades or even over years, we know that something has to be able to change that's not a genetic change. And that means just on grounds of, of scientific simplicity or parsimony that uh, we have everything we need to explain the earlier changes as well, so we don't really have need, a need for the hypothesis that there's been a biological change. So here we have Steven Pinker, uh, who people think of as Darwin's man, really giving what sounds more like a conventional historical argument. Well, it's unconventional in the following way, that it is psychological, in, uh, that I try to explain the historical changes, not just by saying, well, we got, we got less violent because the uh, culture got less violent, which is, is kind of circular. Uh, instead, I look at parts of human nature that were there all along, that you can see in every time and in every human group, but that were more fully applied in one period uh, than in other for, for reasons that I try to identify. I think human nature is complex. Uh, in fact, I got the title of the book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, from Lincoln's uh, very colorful term, alluding to the fact that there are many components to human nature, some of which can pull us away from violence. The idea is that our better angels have always been around. They are a product of Darwinian uh, natural selection, but the different environments activate them to different degrees. Well, uh, if I read your book correctly, uh, and you're not the only one who, who said this, I mean, evolution may give us some basic tendencies, some basic faculties, some uh, inclinations, some, some potential to do this or that, which includes both good and bad. But uh, the kind of um, cultural and societal forces 
that you describe here are what really turn it into moral conduct. Yes, although the, the cultural and societal forces, they're not like uh, you know, they're not like the weather. They're not external forces right. uh, that you can measure with an instrument. They themselves are just products of human minds. I mean, what is culture? What is society? It's just uh, ways that people think up of dealing with one another. And so I don't make a, a sharp distinction between culture and biology. It's our biology that allows us to create and transmit culture, and they're all part of the same explanation. Well, our biology allows us to, you know, allows this cultural overlay in the same way that a typewriter allows, you know, a book, uh, you know, a book to be written, right? I mean, but the difference between the typewriter and the book is, is enormous. I mean, you wouldn't, expl- you wouldn't try to explain the book by analyzing the typewriter, would you? Uh, that's right, except in this case, it's a typewriter that, that types itself. It doesn't need a, uh, <laughs> uh, an external uh, agent that itself would need an explanation. But yes, I think that uh, the reason that there can be so much variation over the course of history is that one component of human nature is this open-ended combinatorial system, uh, you know, a bit like a typewriter, that can just multiply out an unno- uh, uh, unthinkable number of possibilities. And that's an idea that really came from my, my um, studies of language, Namely, language is a system that gives us a, a finite vocabulary, a, a fixed number of grammatical rules, but you multiply them out and there's no shortage of things that we can say, and that's because there's no shortage of things that we can think. The, the human, human cognition is also a system that works by combining concepts according to rules, and you never know what the mind of uh, humans will come up with, concepts like democracy, like human rights, which we certainly were not born with, but we do have the apparatus to come up with. But the, you know, the simplistic version of evolutionary psychology, one that might maybe exist more in the popular imagination than it does in the actual practice of science, that you can look at the genes and say, oh, these will cause you know, societal outcomes uh, as follows, or these will cause complex behaviors as follows, that's not really what you're doing in this book. No, and it's not what uh, it's really not what ever, any evolutionary psychologist has uh, has ever done. I think people are so um, unaccustomed to the idea that uh, that culture and society are products of uh, mental faculties that evolved that um, it's hard for people to wrap their minds around. So they think that it's a claim that genes cause beha- behavior directly, mm-hmm. which is absurd. A, a gene can't actually. Uh, pull your muscles directly. It it can uh, help grow a brain, and the brain obviously has to take in information from the environment in particular ways. So uh, the the dichotomy of uh, culture as this this, this gas that just envelops us or, or writes on a blank slate is wrong, and the idea that we have genes that directly pull our muscles and and, and uh, control us like robots is also wrong. Or, or that there is a, you know, a mean gene, a gene that makes you a potential mass murderer or something like that. Yes, there, and there, there is no such gene, uh, which is not <laughs> to say that there aren't patterns of uh, tens of thousands of genes that might give us rather nasty urges like dominance and revenge, but it's not going to be one gene for one behavior. I mean, one could imagine genetic changes that might affect um, particular neurotransmitters in the brain such that you're, oh, you have less self-control or, or more short-tempered or uh, more anxious and all those things in certain situations with certain kinds of upbringing, et cetera, et cetera, all those necessary environmental ingredients could make someone violent. That is true, yes, and I do discuss that in, in um, Better Angels because there are some pathways that we know about both from uh, unusual 
genes in uh, humans and from experiments with animals that there are some times when uh, a single genetic change can result in uh, greater abundance of a neurotransmitter or uh, faster recycling or greater breakdown, uh, which, can, which indeed can affect emotions and then behavior. So yes, you can't, you're, you're right that one can't rule out uh, the possibility that, that some small genetic changes could cause a large difference in motivation and behavior. But a lot of them, like the, uh, say, the concept of human rights, would not be uh, attributable to a single gene or a, a combination of genes. Um, when you talk about human nature uh, in your book, and you do discuss it, I mean, getting down to uh, what we know of the brain, what we know of uh, adaptation in humans, you, you talk more about sort of what I'd call the basic materials uh, that could come together to produce moral or immoral behavior. I mean, things like revenge, dominance, uh, sadism, pred predation, or on the other hand, empathy, self-control, um, and reason. Um, my sense from talking to people like uh, Felix Varnikin, who is a colleague of yours at Harvard, who you cite in um, your acknowledgments, mm -hmm. who works with children, studies mm -hmm. moral behavior in children, uh, and he's found that very young children who seemingly haven't had time to be trained uh, morally and offered no reward will sometimes act in ways that seem pretty unselfish and altruistic uh, in these experiments he does. Now, you could say, well, we're innately moral, right? Uh, but, but not quite. I mean, uh, altruism and helpful behavior like that could be used to, um, to very bad ends in the wrong cultural context, right? I mean, a, a number of Nazis were very, very helpful to each other. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in fact, the entire phenomenon that we call corruption when you think about it, is a kind of uh, altruism. Namely, you're doing favors to your relatives and your friends. Now, of course, we call that nepotism and cronyism, and it is a bad thing in the context of a complex society with rules and organizations and laws and uh, prohibitions against conflict of interest. But when you think about it, the, the nasty word corruption refers to something quite warm and fuzzy, giving being nice to your friends and relatives. So am I right in thinking that your view and that of maybe some developmental psychologists like Felix, who, by the way, has been on this show, is that nature, you know, to put it uh, in crude terms, may endow us with some building blocks from which you might construct what we would call uh, good behavior or bad behavior. It's, it doesn't make us good or bad. Uh, that's exactly right. So the old question is, are we basically violent or basically peaceful? Are we basically selfish or are we basically uh, altruistic? I think are, are bad questions. That we have uh, uh, complicated sets of rules as to when the cooperative components of human nature get uh, engaged, when the selfish ones get engaged, uh, and any statement about what humans are like across the board is too simplistic. So... Back to the the main thrust of your argument that a whole bunch of things have happened at the historical social level that have generally made us more peaceable creatures. It's not the list I would have expected from a scientist, as I said before, nor is it some kind of totalizing, grand, unified theory, one cause, the kind of thing we see when someone is bent on intellectual showmanship. Uh, instead, this is a really, I would say, a very modest proposal you're making, uh, no no intentional reference to uh, Jonathan Swift. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, yes, I, I, I try to. That's right. I, I have a distaste to for grand intellectual sweeping uh, theories, the kind you might associate with, you know, say Freud or Marx. Uh, I think science tends to to uh, avoid those 
sweeping grand systems. The, the brain is a complicated system. The, it's got, got a, many parts, all kinds of neurotransmitter systems and uh, a big uh, wrinkled cortex sitting on top of an evolutionarily ancient uh, limbic system with many parts. So any account of, uh, of human nature is going to have to uh, be complicated, and then any account of how it plays out in the context of society over long stretches of time uh, is not going to uh, uh, possibly be simple and, and be uh, credible at the same time. So I, I take the attitude that I like to think most scientists take, namely your theory should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Um, you acknowledge, in fact, that you know citing things like these civilizing processes, which include even things like table manners, you know, uh, etiquette, things that make us more responsive to each other, that constrain us, that make give us uh, more self-discipline, that kind of thing, have all contributed. This is, uh, you know, a very old-fashioned-seeming argument, and, and I think you, um, you're well aware of that. Uh, and, and you're very much a fan of the Enlightenment, which has become kind of... Square. Kind of square outre, you know, in intellectual <laughs> circles. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I, I realize that I'm resurrecting some... Uh, old-fashioned ideas, but uh, but I was convinced just by looking at these changes, which we tend to take for granted. I think that's why these concepts have come to appear square. We forget that we really are uh, much less violent than the medievals. We forget that we have retired practices like uh, burning at the stake and breaking on the wheel, for which the, the Enlightenment was necessary as a, as a cure. And it's when you remember what life used to be like that you appreciate why these old-fashioned notions became popular in the first place. They, they really do explain something important. Do you see backsliding happening, though, in um, present-day America uh, and maybe some other parts of the world as well? I mean, um, certainly our popular culture is as violent as it's ever been. Our movies are, are more graphic than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, capital punishment, of course, has made a comeback in many states. Um, our views toward war certainly aren't what they were in the 60s, the popular view. Do you think this trend is reversing itself? Um, I think there certainly has, uh, have been some local reversals. The, uh, the violent crime boom that, that started in the 1960s is an example. The uh, explosion of civil wars in the developing world starting in the 60s is uh, another example. The, um, the heyday of, of genocidal uh, dictators in the middle decades of the 20th century, that was another uh, reversal. So uh, all of which, uh, all of those reversals have in, uh, subsequently themselves been reversed. So they, they weren't, none of them were a new normal. They, in each case, we um, got back to a uh, more peaceful, peaceable existence. But I don't think the examples that you mentioned are, uh, are good cases of... Um, of uh, backsliding, because uh, certainly deaths in wars, including American wars, are way down from the 1960s, as, as horrible as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been. They've killed uh, less than a, a tenth as many soldiers. American soldiers have died in uh, Vietnam. Uh, and whereas during the Vietnam era, there were some noisy students demonstrating, but the politicians in power continued to prosecute the war. Uh, now the politicians are much more skittish about sacrificing uh, American lives and foreign lives. As horrible as drone attacks are, they're a hell of a lot better than carpet bombing in terms of the, the amount of uh, collateral damage, to use the euphemism. Uh, likewise, the uh, capital punishment uh, 
even though there was a, an increase after the Supreme Court ruled that there were guidelines by which it could be applied fairly, it's a fraction of the um, uh, level that it used to be at in, in earlier decades and centuries. Uh, per capita, we, we now execute maybe 40 to 45 people a year in a country that has uh, almost 17,000 homicides a year. The percentage used to be far, far higher in previous decades. Um, you're responding to, to deeds, and I'm, I'm sort of responding to, to words, the fact that our discourse seems to be more violent. Our tolerance for things like torture, uh, which for a time, you know, was not considered even an option you know, in public policy, and is now talked about by some people as though it's it's a natural option, you know, in the war on terror, at least. Uh, I talked about popular culture, the way violence is talked about. Also, a kind of, it seems to me, a little bit of an upsurge in, in tribalism and nationalism in uh, a lot of um, public talk these days. But that doesn't really amount to anything when compared to what we're really doing out there. Uh, I, I think that the that what we're doing um, is is uh, pushing in a direction that, uh, 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 in terms of actual deeds, that that goes against some of these impressions. And even those impressions, you really have to look at past decades uh, to um, uh, to know whether it's gotten worse or better. And that I, I agree that in some ways popular culture seems more violent, but in other ways it seems much more sanitized. So, for example. Uh, when, when I grew up, there were all these shows on television with uh, enormous amounts of, uh, of uh, gunplay. Have Gun Will Travel, Gun Smoke, uh, shows in which uh, Native Americans were freely and cheerfully shot, which would be impossible today. You have in the 1950s and early 60s, you have Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners getting a predictable laugh when he would shake his fist at his wife and say, one of these days, pow, right in the kisser. <laughs> that would be unthinkable today. Uh, you have Steven Spielberg when he re-released E.T. in a 25th anniversary edition. He digitally removed the guns from, from the hands of the policemen and had replaced them with walkie-talkies because you don't want to expose kids to, to guns, uh, even in that uh, family-friendly movie. Uh, so it, the, the culture is going in a number of directions at once. In some ways, we've become much more prissy about violence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you're definitely right. I mean, the, the violence has gotten more graphic. It's been amped up in some ways. And yet, the kind of casual violence that people didn't used to remark on, if you look at old comedies, I mean, the old silent comedies, people were always knocking each other on the head. And and I know that was just for fun, but there was a sense that, yeah, bosses really did hit their underlings, and parents really did hit their children a lot. Look at the Three Stooges. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you a pacifist? Uh, not, not a universal pacifist, uh, an unconditional pacifist, no. Uh, uh, I, I do believe in uh, the, the idea of non, nonviolent resistance as a more effective tactic than, than violent uh, resistance. But I wouldn't dismantle the police force and the army uh, uh, unconditionally, no, just because the, the other guy, there are bad guys out there. You have a concept in, in your book that you call the pacifist dilemma. Can you explain it? Yes, and if this is the closest that I'm willing to come to a kind of theory of everything when it comes to yeah, violence. Yeah. Uh, namely, violence is what game theorists call a social dilemma. It is tempting for each side to exploit the other, but it is ruinous if both sides do it at the same time, because uh, over the course of history, you're as likely to become an, be an aggressor as a victim. So if everyone could kind of sit down and get together and say, look, I won't 
commit aggression if you don't. Everyone agrees that that would be a better state of affairs. The problem is, how do you lay down your sword uh, and get the other guy to do it at the same time? It's, it's an other guy problem. Uh, and But over the course of history, I think we have tried to crack that problem. How do you get, uh, instead of just being a uh, unilateral pacifist, which can be a form of suicide, how do you get the other guy to be a tiny bit more pacifistic at the same time as you do and gradually spiral downward? And all of the forces that I mentioned that have, have uh, chipped away at violence, I think, have been chipping away at the um, impediments to two adversaries both laying down their arms simultaneously. Uh, so if we look at, you know, just a raw state of nature, let's imagine, where you've got two parties, uh, one of whom could attack the other, a pacifist is going to lose, almost certainly. It's just in the other's interest to attack the poor pacifist, and they could get away with it with no cost whatsoever. So both are on guard. In fact, it might be better to attack first uh, rather than wait for the other guy to attack. And so you're stuck in this you know, the situation of constant defensiveness or offensiveness, but uh, you can't, you can never rest in this world. But you're saying that all these civilizing forces, all of these um, positive some sorts of processes like commerce, uh, things like law and legal systems, uh, customs, have actually raised the costs of aggression so that the old calculus doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't pay, you know, to be a thug uh, the way it used to and actually... Yeah, you can you can even be kind of a pacifist in in your daily life. Yeah, as long as everyone else is a pacifist at yeah. the same time. Yeah, that, yeah. That, I think that that's exactly right, and I think that's exactly what things like government do. They not only penalize you for aggression, but just as important, they penalize your neighbor from aggressing against you, and that allows you to relax a bit, and and vice versa, and you can get a uh, um, a, 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 a positive feedback loop. Uh, likewise, the expansion of opportunities for commerce and trade. Uh, if it's cheaper to buy something than to steal it, then you're going to buy it, and that's what the expansion of commerce has helped to do. So while not going all the way uh, into the grand unified theory... Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, that's the closest I come. Yeah. It is, it is, and it, it, you know, you, you definitely flirt with the idea, uh, or maybe you go further, that there is something mechanistic and inevitable about this. If you've got a system of rational or semi-rational agents acting in their own interest, and you give them these inescapable realities, that is, uh, you know, the unconstrained state where aggression pays off, or at least it's the safer strategy. But then you start instituting uh, these processes which come out of, you know, again, maybe not inevitable, but they certainly they seem they're, they're very probable when you get a lot of people together. Maybe you do have, a, you know, a hard science uh, explanation of violence and its wane. Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't want to make too many claims for for, for this idea, but that's certainly w where I wanted to head. Uh, and it, you're right that it would kind of predict that if you had uh, you know a hundred planets with uh, intelligent life, many of them would go through the same sequence that uh, that we went through, starting off in in uh, constant tribal warfare, and as uh, knowledge increased and and um, uh, rational deliberation and institutions arose and the, the good ones were kept and the bad ones were discarded, there'd be some kind of uh, walk, uh, random walk, but uh, but, but uh, with a, a direction. So I guess it wouldn't be a random walk, but a, a noisy uh, progression with lots of local reversals, but, but uh, overall in the direction that we've seen on this planet. So 
you know, in addition to the uh, the idea of some directionality, some implicit directionality, based, I guess, on on the principles of game theory here, that might lead to cooperation and uh, pacification uh, of groups of potentially violent <laughs> yeah, individuals. Yeah. You also have this idea of the escalator of reason. Can you can you summarize that? Briefly? Yeah, I think that it's very much part of this this process. Some of which might be emotional. We just uh, feel the pain of of others, but some of it might be more intellectual. Namely, uh, how can you justify what you do uh, if you are forced to justify it in conversation with others? If you all get around, sit around a table, and say, "Well, let's hash out what we uh, ought to do," the conversation is going to go in certain directions, and uh, you can't privilege your own interests over someone else's. You can't say, well, I reserve the right to enslave you, but you can't enslave me. Because as soon as you do that, the other guy is going to say, well, what's so special about you? How come you get to be the slave owner and I get to be the slave? Uh, you, you can't justify that if you want me to take you seriously. And so the, 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 any rational debate is going to move in the direction of a, a golden rule, a categorical imperative, uh, a veil of ignorance, the, uh, the view from nowhere, towards everyone's interests being treated as equivalent. And that is going to push you in the direction of less violence, because violence on average makes the, 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 the totality of people worse off. The harm to the victim is much greater than the gain to the uh, aggressor. And I think that as we've become literate, as we've be, uh, been thrown into societies where there is freedom of speech and mixing of people and cities where people rub shoulders and, and salons and pubs and coffee houses and parliaments, where you hash things out, the, 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 the debate is going to naturally go in certain directions. And so there is a kind of directionality in terms of what is the rational way of uh, self-interested agents to organize their affairs, and that is less violence. But that kind of debate, that kind of civil debate, that kind of uh, reasoned uh, thinking it through that you're talking about is something that has to be inculcated and sustained by society. It doesn't, it doesn't just come naturally to everybody. No, and the, the, it needs uh, some ground rules, and of which freedom of speech might be the, the first. So if you get to murder people who disagree with you, then all bets are off. And in fact, that is exactly how the uh, horrific... Uh, societies of the mid-20th century, Nazism, uh, uh, Stalinism, Mao, uh, Imperial Japan, all originated. They all originated with the murder of critics. Uh, and th that's why the people who emphasize free speech as the basis of uh, everything else, I think, have a, a lot of history as well as logic on their side. Are you for completely unbridled free speech? With with the common sense exceptions that that we tend to have, uh, incitement to immediate violence, uh, libel, uh, revealing uh, some small core of essential state secrets, uh, you, you, there are some common sense exceptions. But mm. uh, but but by and large, uh, extortion is another one of them. But but by and large, I'd be a a, a, a strong supporter of civil liberties and free speech. Mm. Uh, the piece that we're talking about that is the the increasing peacefulness <laughs> that you uh describe in this very optimistic book is really fragile though i mean it depends on as i said before institutions that can be disrupted uh, very easily uh, they can I mean, it's a it's a 
uh, interesting question, which I can't quite uh, answer conclusively how exactly how fragile they are, because some uh, some acts of progress have seen seem to be irreversible. So human sacrifice, which was practiced by every ancient civilization, once the civilization puts it behind it, it, it doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. We don't throw virgins into volcanoes anymore. Uh, legalized slavery. Uh, every country has abolished it, and even though there is human trafficking in the shadows, the idea that you'd have open slave markets and governments enforcing the ownership of slaves, that I, that's gone, and, and I don't see that coming back. So the question is, and we don't, just don't know the answer, are some, at least some of these other developments, like human sacrifice and slavery and burning religious heretics, that uh, you really can't put them behind you? And there has been an argument from uh, the political science, scientist John Mueller that that's what's happened to war between states, that, uh, that, which, which are now quite rare. There are some civil wars, but there are uh, the war, big all-out wars with two uh, massive armies of tanks uh, facing each other in the battlefield seems to be going into history. And uh, we don't know yet whether it's going to be like human sacrifice or slavery, but it's not uh, unthinkable that it could be. Now, none of this that we're talking about, none of this process is, is, is moral in a, a traditional sense of, of, of being prescriptively a statement that this is what we should do, this is good. I mean, you are saying this is what we have done, and maybe it's inevitable, maybe it really does come out of mathematics uh, <laughs> as much as anything else, and self-interest, right? And that's not what, what I would call morality, no, the, although there is a theory of morality that uh, th- that uh, things that minimize suffering to humans and that maximize human flourishing—that's what—that's what morality is, or at least ought to be. It's a kind of a kind of utilitarianism. Uh, it's not the only moral theory, although I, I tend to think that it is the one that's going to uh, survive. And even defining morality in that way, I think, has led to a lot of good consequences. So, just to give you one example, nowadays virtually no one would argue that uh, homosexuals should be imprisoned. But that, that certainly happened, uh, was acceptable a few decades ago. Why? Well, you think about it, and you think, well, what consenting adults do in private doesn't harm anyone. It, it benefits the parties involved. And therefore, even if the behavior repels us emotionally, even if our cultural traditions say it's wrong, even if our holy books say it's wrong, it really isn't wrong. It's not wrong because it doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, that kind of thinking has taken a lot of forms of punishment off the books and I think has led to a more humane society. And even though it seems very nerdy and unglamorous and uh, not as thrilling as uh, morality based on ringing principles, just tallying up the number of people who are harmed and the number of people are, 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 who are hurt, uh, it, I think it has been a humane development. It's what my colleague Josh Green calls uh, nerd morality. <laughs> it may seem nerdy and cold and uh, calculated, um, but utilitarianism still has at bottom what I can't, I can't call anything other than a belief, and that is a belief that minimizing suffering and maximizing happiness is good. And, and, and no mathematics can tell you that. Yes, you're absolutely right about that, that there is, there, there is that leap although it's not much of a leap, uh, granted that it is one. Namely, as soon as you have uh, uh, agents that, uh, that value their own well-being, that would rather live than die, would rather keep their body parts intact than have them uh, uh, maimed, uh, plus you have uh, them being social. They have to 
persuade others, social and verbal. They have to persuade others that some ways of living are better than others. Those indeed are leaps. They're not mathematically necessary. But you throw that into the, 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 the uh, pot, and that's going to lead to a morality of minimizing harm and maximizing flourishing. Well, you know, square that, you know, rational account, that logical account, I would say mechanistic account, uh, with the Steven Pinker we heard at the beginning of this interview expressing his heartfelt revulsion, his absolutely visceral dislike of violence. Yes. Well, uh, I, I am a human being, and, and, and so are you, and so is everyone listening. We do come equipped with uh, emotions. Um, the emotions themselves are left to their own devices are not going to bring about a, a better world, but when they are mobilized in the service of uh, reasons that we can justify, then I, that combination, I think, can, can lead us to a better life. Okay, Spock. <laughs> <laughs> I plead guilty. Um, I have had your wife, Rebecca Goldstein, on my show also with her last book. Mm -hmm. And do you cite her as the biggest influence in, in shaping your worldview? Absolutely. What have Rebecca's thought are, are we seeing in this new book? This entire discussion that grounds morality in reason and that identifies the, uh, the Enlightenment and the, the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment as a progressive force. I, uh, I, would, I would say I owe to Rebecca. Uh, being an unabashed champion of the Enlightenment, uh, uh, believing that morality is not just an emotion, it's not just a tradition, it's not something we get from holy books, but it is a conclusion that we would be forced into by uh, being rational and being social. Uh, I, I owe to, uh, to my wife, Rebecca. Well, here's to the Enlightenment. Thank you so much, Steve. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Great discussion. Steven Pinker. His new book is The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week as usual, Sunday at noon, right here on the 7th Avenue Project.